Hundreds of market-leading companies worldwide use GEP software to transform their procurement and supply chain operations. Why? GEP software, built on GEP Quantum, the AI-powered, low-code platform for procurement, supply chain, and sustainability, helps businesses achieve impressive new levels of resilience, sustainability, and competitiveness. GEP software helps companies drive real digital transformation and achieve amazing results. GEP.com Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Patrick Lane, in for Jason Palmer this week. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Sweden's response to the coronavirus has so far been unusually relaxed. Life is going on pretty much as normal. Swedes aren't confined to their homes, bars, cafes and schools remain open. Have the authorities got it right or horribly wrong? What expletives are most offensive to your ears? Do they involve sexual acts, religion, bodily functions? If you're Dutch, the chances are they'll involve disease. We report on the Dutch way with words. First up, though. When the cruise ship Zaandam left Buenos Aires in early March, its passengers were promised 31 nights of elegant and comfortable luxury. Since then, their holiday has been anything but elegant, comfortable or luxurious. After several passengers developed coronavirus symptoms, the boat was turned away from docking in Chile. Four passengers have since died, and hundreds have developed flu-like symptoms, prompting desperate pleas from those on board. Storm clouds are forming. The sea is getting ever darker as we search for a port to take us. The world is watching on, and the world will remember whatever happens. The boat, operated by Holland America, which is owned by Carnival, is now expected off the coast of Florida today, after being rejected by several other potential ports of call. Whether passengers will finally be allowed to disembark remains unclear. And we do not want to see people dumped uh, in southern Florida right now. Once sold as an easy and safe way to see the world, cruise ships have instead become one of the most enduring images of the pandemic. It's unclear if the industry will ever recover. Well, there are definitely rough seas ahead. This is one of the industries which has had it roughest due to the spread of COVID-19 around the world. Charles Reed writes about travel for The Economist. The world's three largest cruise firms, that is Carnival, Royal Caribbean and Norwegian Cruise Lines, which account for nearly 80% of global capacity, have been forced to suspend all voyages and have laid up their ships. This has been partly because demand for cruises have collapsed, but it's also been due to government action. America and Britain have issued completely unprecedented travel advisories, suggesting that over 70 should not go cruising. Canada is banning large cruise ships from docking in its ports from today until at least July. And it follows a long line of countries which have introduced similar restrictions, from India to Singapore to Australia to New Zealand. Now, Charles, as we've said, the spread of COVID-19 on cruise ships has been one of the reasons for this fall off in demand. But 
cruise ships have always had a bit of a reputation, perhaps unkindly, as being floaty petri dishes. So what is it that's, uh, yeah, what's different this time? Yes, there's been a lot of media coverage about norovirus outbreaks on board cruise ships. And that's a little unfair when it comes to norovirus in that these tend to be isolated instances. You're more likely to gain norovirus at home on land than you are on a cruise ship. And it's also a not particularly serious disease. COVID-19, on the other hand, is much more serious but the big reason why it damages the industry is it cements the perception that cruise ships are dangerous. It's the sort of place where diseases spread very easily on board. And it doesn't help that many cruisers are elderly. This is the group who are most likely to die from COVID-19. And a third of cruisers globally are aged over 60. And so that takes away quite a large chunk of uh, this industry's customers. So business must be looking pretty dire for cruise lines just now. The immediate problem is that these companies have laid up their cruise ships. They have absolutely no revenue coming in, no revenue at all. People haven't booked cruises. People are cancelling more cruises than they're booking. Future sales for the end of this year and even next year are down significantly. And as a result, their share prices have fallen between 70 to 80% since the start of the year. And that's pretty astonishingly terrible, even compared to other companies. The stock market overall has only fallen about 30% since the start of the year. And airlines, who again have been forced to, in many cases, shut down their operations completely, have only seen declines of about 60%. How, how bad is it for them financially? Are they in serious trouble? Will they survive? Is it possible, to coin a phrase, that they might even need a bailout? Well, the big three have relatively good finances in that they built up very strong balance sheets in recent years. In recent years, some cruise lines have made returns on capital annually of 20% or more. And so the big three cruise lines will be able to survive without issuing new shares or issuing new debt for at least six months. However, Investors are still nervous because potentially the restrictions associated with COVID-19, particularly the travel restrictions and restrictions on cruise lines, could last a lot longer. And the point is, unlike other companies, cruise lines have been left out in the cold. They were excluded, basically, from the $2 trillion American bailout last week. The legislation of the bailout said that it was only that companies with more than 50% of their workers based in America and which are headquartered in America, will receive help. The problem is is that cruise lines aren't eligible under their criteria. They are based offshore to minimise their tax liabilities, and their crews tend to come from developing countries in order to cut costs. These are all things which have irked American politicians for many years, but means that cruise lines are unlikely to get a sympathetic reception from them now or in the future. Okay, so the cruise industry may not get a bailout in the short term, but aren't other travel-related industries getting some support? Well, America has set aside in its fiscal stimulus $50 billion for loans and grants to the airline industry. This is far more than has been specifically earmarked for any other sector in America. And the airlines in return have agreed to retain their staff until 
October to curb the salaries of their top executives and to cancel shareholder payouts until the end of 2021. So airlines in America do seem to be the favoured child at the moment. So there's quite a contrast between these two modes of transport between the airline industry and the cruise ship industry. So to go back to our point of embarkation, if you like, is this the the end of cruises, do you think? Might 2020 be the year when the cruise industry began to sink? I don't think that this downturn will make the big three cruise lines disappear. However, it might mark the end of the golden era of cruising. And that's partly because with airlines, people always need to fly somewhere. Business travellers will go back to airlines eventually. But cruises are, are, are not necessary in that there are other alternatives such as holidays on land. There's some evidence that young people don't like cruising as much as older generations do. This is partly because younger travellers like more adventurous holidays. They're very concerned about the environmental impacts of their travels, and they're also more interested in workers' rights. And these are all three areas where the big free cruise lines have been criticised. But worse still than that from this industry is that many older folk will find their land legs for holidays and years to come. Charles, thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much. To get a lot more analysis like this, subscribe to The Economist, a trusted source of information and, well, intelligence for 175 years. Just go to economist.com slash radio offer. 12 issues for $12 or £12. The number of confirmed cases of coronavirus worldwide has reached almost a million, and nearly 50,000 of those have died. Yesterday, the UN Secretary-General Antonio Guterres described the pandemic as the world's biggest challenge since World War II. We are slowly moving in the right direction, but we need to speed up and we need to do much more if we want to defeat the virus and if we want to support the people in it. This is not a financial crisis. This is a human crisis. Governments around the world have imposed strict measures to try and thwart the spread of the virus. In America, some 245 million people have been told to stay at home. Lockdowns are being enforced across Europe. But some countries are choosing a more laissez-faire approach. Sweden, which has nowhere near the infection levels of the worst-hit countries, has remained largely open for business. But there are stern warnings that this is complacent and putting many lives at risk. Daily life in Sweden is not much different from what it used to be, say, um, a year ago at the same time. Wendelin von Brido is our Europe correspondent. Cafes are still open, restaurants are open, pubs are open, cinemas are open, gyms, schools, uh, at least for those under 16. So until now, restrictions of daily life have been minimal and mostly recommendations such as wash your hands frequently, work from home if you can, and maybe most importantly, try to isolate the elderly. So even the King Gustav and his wife Sylvia are isolating at a castle 120 kilometers west of Stockholm, isolating in style, one should say. But all these are mainly recommendations and not strict rules. Wendling, this sounds very, very different from what's going on in other European countries. Why has Sweden taken such a a different approach? 
Basically, the Swedish government followed the advice of the public health agency. That's an independent body. And even though they do not really use the term herd immunity, they argued for letting the virus spread slowly, try to let it spread in a controlled manner, but not shut down public life. Um, and so basically, they seem to think they can control it and the health system would be able to cope with the cases of COVID. Now, this sounds very similar to the approach that Britain used at first, although that came in for some pretty stiff criticism and the government here ditched it pretty fast. What's different in Sweden? Well, in truth, there is a, a big debate in Sweden too, and the voices criticising the, the, the government strategy have become louder in, in recent weeks. There are leading doctors and scientists and professors, 2,000 of them, including the head of the Nobel Foundation, even signed a petition um, arguing for stricter measures. So it's not as if there were no uh, debate. There's a very emotional debate by Swedish standards. But um, yes, so many predict that Sweden will eventually follow Britain sooner rather than later and tighten restrictions uh, too. And it's actually already started. So a couple of days ago, they closed the biggest ski resort, which had also been open until recently. And do we have any evidence yet about how well this is actually working? If you look at the statistics so far compared with neighbouring countries, say Norway and Denmark, can we say anything yet about whether this has been successful or unsuccessful? Well, so far, Sweden has a relatively low rate of infections and a relatively low mortality. It's also related to the way Swedes live. It's a very big country that's sparsely populated. More than one half of Swedish households are single-person households. Swedes don't hug or kiss much, like um, unlike Southern Europeans. So there is sort of a genetic predisposition to self-isolate, uh, or at least to to distance socially, uh, which probably helped to keep you know both rates of infection and of course uh, um, serious illnesses quite low. But um, but it has been increasing. There has been an upward trend, and that's why people are getting increasingly worried. What's the reaction been among the Swedish public more broadly? I mean, clearly anxiety has been beginning to rise over the past couple of days. There's been criticism from medical professionals. But by and large, how have Swedes thought about their government's reaction to, to the crisis? So far, the public has been uh, largely supportive. So, so there, there are surveys that show that the, the government's policy is backed by the majority of the population. Another important feature of the Swedish uh, social contract is that there's a lot of trust. So the state is trusted by its citizens, the state trusts its citizens, and citizens trust each other. So um, when something seems to make sense, as obviously these recommendations do on these new rules, people will just trust that's the right thing and, and do it and do it in a very disciplined way. But of course, as in all countries, as the rate of infection and the death toll rises, I, I think there will be more of a call to reverse course. And, and that's happening. And I think if the prime minister realises he's really losing support of the population at large, he will change course. Now, as you mentioned uh, at the beginning of our conversation, 
over the past day or so, the Swedish government has tightened things up a, a bit. You know, it's closing ski resorts. It's asked people not to travel in the rush hour, asked people not to visit relatives over Easter. Is this the beginning of a much more marked tightening? In other words, do you think Sweden over the next few days, over the next few weeks, is going to fall in line with the rest of Europe? I think the next two weeks will be decisive. And depending on how the rate of infection and mortality develops, I think there's a strong chance that Sweden will follow the rest of Europe and basically more or less lock down the, the, the economy. Maybe they will follow the German model where, for instance, you can still go out as much as you like and you're, you're basically free to walk around as long as you're on your own or just with one person. I doubt it will be as strict as France or Italy, but I think it will probably be stricter than it is now. Madeline, thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Patrick. Always a pleasure. To follow all of The Economist's coverage of the COVID-19 pandemic and how it is swiftly reshaping the world, visit economist.com slash coronavirus. GEP AI-powered digital transformation. GEP is the global leader in AI-powered procurement and supply chain transformation, helping companies achieve impressive new levels of resilience, sustainability, and competitiveness with strategy-managed services and AI-powered low-code software platform, GEP Quantum. Hundreds of market-leading companies worldwide count on GEP to transform their procurement and supply chain operations and achieve amazing results. GEP.com. A word of caution. Our last segment contains offensive language, especially if you speak Dutch. So if you'd rather not hear it, thanks for listening and see you tomorrow. In most languages, saying someone has an illness is generally a diagnosis. But in Dutch, it's more likely to be an insult. The word cancer sufferer in Dutch, kankerlier, is a strong insult. I can't say the word in English that would be a proper translation to communicate how strong that is, because it wouldn't be acceptable on the radio. Matt Steinglass is The Economist's Europe correspondent. But it's one of a long list of disease-related profanities that they use in Dutch. So someone you don't want around, you might tell to typhus off, optifuse, or you could tell them to get consumption, krijg de tiering. There are some rather Shakespearean ones that still continue to exist in Dutch, like in the 16th century, people in England might have called someone a poxy bitch, and you can still say that in Dutch, a pocketeif. Going a damned long way is a klierenind, which means a cholera end, and so forth. Well, to an English speaker, that sounds, well, it sounds very different. Do you know of any other languages that have got this um, charming quality? There are actually a fair number of languages that have a few disease-based swear words. Apparently in Polish, you can say cholera as a swear word. In Vietnamese, for damn, you say jet, which just means death. But Dutch has an unusually deep vocabulary of disease-related swear words, and you can put them together. So you can say, like, uh, go get the plague, you dirty, filthy, poxy bitch. Um, and the... The commonality here is that in all cultures, swear words are linked to taboos, and normally those would be sex or excrement or religion. 
And that's true in Dutch too. There are a lot of Dutch words that are similar to the equivalents in English. But the Dutch swear words that are based on excrement or sex tended to be softer. So you can say scheit in Dutch, but it doesn't mean the same thing as the similar sounding word in English does. It's much softer. You can use it in, in semi-polite company. And the word whore, for example, is an insult in Dutch as well, whore. But last autumn, when the rapper Little Kleine had a beef with a pop singer named Anouk, he went with the harsher insult, kankerhoor, which means cancer whore. Now, this sounds like fantastic terrain for linguists to pour over and to theorise about. Have they come up with any theories as to why Dutch has ended up with so many disease-based curses? One theory is that it has something to do with Calvinism, which is the very puritanical strain of Protestantism that took hold in the Netherlands in the 16th century. And the interesting thing about Calvinism is that it shifts the focus of holiness from the afterlife to this life, because in Calvinism, people believe that if you're going to go to heaven, that will reveal itself in this life as superior hygiene, superior health, more wealth, and so forth. So if in older language you might have said, God damn it, and that would have been a very strong curse, in the shifts to Calvinism, God damn it becomes less powerful, and you start to want to curse with things in this life that reveal your corrupt nature in this life, like a disease. So it's, it's almost as if these terrible swear words are almost a theological advance to the Calvinists. Well, the Calvinists definitely see it that way. But, you know, it does explain why the disease carries an extra kind of religious oomph in Dutch society. But there are some other theories as well for why the Dutch uses disease-based swear words. One theory is there is one other language that linguists know of that has a really rich vocabulary of disease-based swear words which you can combine with each other, and that is Yiddish. And the Jews had a significant presence in the Netherlands and also loaned a lot of Yiddish words to, uh, to regular Dutch language. So that's one possibility. The second possibility is called the frequency hypothesis among linguists. And that's simply that it caught on and kept on spreading, sort of like a virus. And we're already starting to see that some Dutch kids are cursing each other out by calling each other uh, corona idiots. Right, well, I, th I think, Matt, that we had better part with scrupulous politeness. So I'll just say thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Patrick. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. See you back here tomorrow. What do resilient, sustainable, and high-performing supply chains have in common? They are all powered by GEP Software. Built on GEP Quantum, the AI-powered, low-code software platform for procurement, supply chain, and sustainability, GEP Software helps market-leading companies worldwide achieve breakthrough performance and results. GEP, helping the world's best companies do better. Visit GEP.com.